0: Autumn presents The Father of Children's Goth, written by James Parker. As a smelly little boarding school boy, I could have done with some Edward Gorey. His lunar campness, his toys in the attic surrealism, his easy way with cruelty, and his remote compassion, coldly and distantly flaming, all of this would have nourished and amplified my child mind. His tiny, twisted books would have helped my development. But I grew up in England despite his rarefied anglophilia and profound relation to english literary tradition no one knows about edward gory so i pickled myself in edward lear and then later a more modern master of english nonsense morrissey from the indie rock legends the smiths as rose collects the money in a canister who comes sliding down the banister the vicar in a tutu he's not strange he just wants to live his life this way What's that, if not a gory drawing set to music? Gory comes sliding down the banister of Mark Derry's, born to be posthumous, the eccentric life and mysterious genius of Edward Gory, not in a tutu, but bejeweled, multi-ringed, otter-fur-coated, leerishly bearded, crazy for the New York City ballet, and definitely wanting to live his life this way. I tend to think life is pastiche, he said once, or possibly more than once. I'm not sure what it's a pastiche of, we haven't found out yet. What shall we call him? A children's writer who didn't particularly like children? Gory produced small illustrated books, booklings, more than one hundred of them, black-and-white pen-and-ink drawings of serrated quaintness, elaborately cross-hatched with accompanying text, some prose, mostly verse. Children suffer greatly in these works. They are sold on the street or carried off by eagles, As in Lear's limericks, many of them function like little torture machines. Till at last, with a hammer, they silenced his clamor. Absurdist violence is everywhere. And nowhere. In 1957's micro-masterpiece, The Doubtful Guest, a Victorian or Edwardian household, all of Gorey's households are Victorian or Edwardian, is abruptly infiltrated by a tender-looking, proboscale creature in white sneakers and a long, stripy scarf. It says nothing. It has no expression except for the ring of wild fatigue around its eye. It behaves oddly, unmanageably, its disruptions cataloged in sturdy and nursery-ready anapestic tetrameters. It joined them at breakfast and presently ate all the syrup and toast and a part of a plate. It lies down in a large tureen. It stands with its nose to the wall. What does it want? Nobody knows. What does it mean? You tell me. Like a trauma, like a gift, like an unaccommodated fact, it sticks around with weirdly devoted constancy. Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat was published the same year, and Derry does some excellent work comparing the two texts, the two chaos bringers, noting with Gory-esque satisfaction that while the Cat in the Hat changed children's books as America knew them, zapping the early reader market with tricksterish cartoon energy, the doubtful guest sank with barely a trace. Gory was an only child. He was a cat person, Otherwise, the rude facts of his biography seem a bit incongruous, a bit anti-Gorey. He was born in Chicago in 1925. His father was a newspaper reporter. His parents got divorced, and he moved briefly to Miami with his mother. Then the summit of dissonance. The Second World War arrived, and Gorey joined the army. He saw no combat. In June 1944, he was posted to a weapons testing area in the Great Salt Lake Desert, a base called Dugway Proving Ground. All around lay wastelands, Derry writes. The stillness was profound, a ringing in the mind. The sky was painfully clear. In this futuristic void, this atomic bird math, the young aesthete sipped tequila and listened to Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. When the war was over, Gory went to Harvard, where he set about the business of, as Derry puts it, becoming Gory. His assistant Dean found him to be a queer looking egg, but his best buddy was the poet Frank O'Hara, so who cares? There began the long coats, the many rings, the weary supremacy. He had crushes on other men. No sex, though, as far as Derry can ascertain, and no long-term companionship. Sedulous bachelorhood became the M.O. Morrissey again. The hills are alive with celibate cries. Gorey moved to Manhattan in 1953 and churned out book covers for Doubleday's mass-market imprint Anchor. This was also the year he published the first of his small books, The Unstrung Harp, about a novelist named Mr. Earbrass. Gory would never again use so much prose in a book, but the prose was good, and more important, it was gory. Mr. Earbrass stands on the terrace at twilight. It is bleak, it is cold, and the virtue has gone out of everything. His poetry, meanwhile, was poetry. A fugitive and lurid gleam obliquely gilds the gilding stream. So run the lines beneath the panel in his 1969 book, The Iron Tonic. Parodic? Iron tonic ironic? Yes and no. These are lovely Tennysonian lines, but with a slight chemical distortion, as if Tennyson had forgotten to take his lithium. In the illustration, a tiny-headed man in a huge fur coat stands, transfixed, lost, dreaming, in a snowy landscape on the bank of a dark stream. Rods of light come poking through the low clouds, And the gliding stream is indeed obliquely gilded. It's gory all the way down. A heavy hanging antique atmosphere retro injected with modernity, with anime, with freaky deadpan emptiness. Gory entered the American cultural mainstream quite suddenly on the evening of February 5th, 1980, when WGBH, the Boston PBS affiliate, debuted its mystery anthology of British crime dramas. Mystery featured title sequences tracked by tango music and worked up by the animator Derek Lamb and his team from motifs in Gory's books. A pen and ink montage of rain, tombstones, flitting aristocrats, a disconsolately struck croquet ball being crushed by falling masonry, a woman's cry wilting and droopily orgasmic. The series was a hit, and Gory, in his creeping, ivy-like way, went nationwide. His influence today, the seep of his sensibility, is pervasive. Derry efficiently lays out the debt owed him by the graphic novel author Neil Gaiman, the cartoonist Alison Bechtel, the filmmaker Tim Burton, and any other fantasist who loiters in the dark gardens of childhood. When I was first writing a series of unfortunate events, remembers Daniel Handler, the author of the Lemony Snicket series, I was wandering around everywhere saying, I am a complete ripoff of Edward Gorey. And everyone said, who's that? Now everyone says, that's right, you are a complete ripoff of Edward Gorey. You can hear Gory's feline phrasing in the voiceovers of Wes Anderson movies. Or you can just look at a dusty chandelier, or someone in jodhpurs, or a particularly knotty, obscurely communicative tree and say, yep, Gorey-esque. Gorey ended his days in his house on Cape Cod, contented after his fashion, that is, gently and wittily moaning. He lived alone, silver-bearded, buried under cats, with his books in heaps, and his mini hordes of tassels, rusty cheese graters, antique potato mashers around him. Was there a clinical component to his unwavering furry presence at every single bloody performance, just about, of the New York City Ballet between the years 1956 and 1979? Something OCD about all that cross-hatching, that endless scritchy-scratching? Probably. And Derry does bang on a bit about Gorey's monastic sexuality, the mystery of his gay-in-everything-but-the-deedness. But enigmas invite speculation. That's what they're for. Edward Gorey is the doubtful guest in this fine biography, a stubbornly evasive and irreducible essence, now sprawled in a tureen, now chewing on crockery, now standing with his nose to the wall. He lived thirty years too early and one hundred years too late. His solitude was significant, that's for sure, but not as significant as his genius, which put him in touch eventually with the audience that could not do without him. The words that end Auden's tribute to Edward Lear apply equally to Lear's truest successor, his transplanted and violently wistful inheritor, Edward Gorey. Children swarmed to him like settlers. He became a land. If you enjoyed this production,